Welcome to the Equipping Podcast. My name is Nate. I'm here with your host, Daddy. <laughs> hey, Nate. What's up, man? How you doing today? I'm doing good. Yeah, what are you doing? <laughs> I'm sitting in a chair doing podcast. Yeah, you're doing a podcast. Good job, dude. Give me a high five. There you go. I love it. What are we doing today, Daddy? Well, Nate, we are going to finish our series on the book of Genesis with Dr. Richard Averbeck from TEDS. Does that sound cool to you? Yes. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Do you like Genesis? Yes. Do you know what happens in Genesis? No. How does it start? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void. Yeah. And what was the Spirit of God doing? The Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. That's right, Nate. That's exactly what the Spirit of God was doing. So, hey, let's finish our conversation on Genesis. Thanks for helping me with the intro. You're welcome. Bye, everybody. We're back this week with Dr. Dick Averbeck from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He's a professor of Old Testament and Semitic languages there in Deerfield, Illinois. Welcome back, Dr. Averbeck. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it. Love it. So if you're starting this podcast series by listening to this one, I would tell you hit pause and go back to the previous two weeks and listen to part one, which was about the introduction and context and all of that genre of the book of Genesis. And then last week we talked about Genesis 1 to 11, how that that really is a much different section than 12 to 50. And so, like any good literary student, we would pay attention to that and not read 1 to 11 the exact same way that we would 12 to 50, because it just fits a different genre. But when we do get into 12 to 50, we do see various themes that from 1 to 11 that do play themselves out in these stories that we find in the rest of the book. So, at the beginning of Genesis 11... You have all of these people who gather at Babel, and then they're really, the Lord gives a commission to Adam and Eve to go into all the world, to fill the earth and subdue it, and yet people are coming together and not doing that. And so, you see kind of Yahweh come down, which that's a really interesting kind of ironic statement. Then mm-hmm. the Lord, they're trying to get up to him, and then he says, nah, I'm going to come down to you. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then he actually forces them to scatter And in the middle of all that, you have this zero in on this nomad, this kind of Bedouin sheik named Abram. And Mm -hmm. uh, Yahweh is like, hey, kind of taps him on the shoulder and says, hey, you want to join me in this? So is that a fair representation? What would you add to that as we launch into the rest of the book? Yes, I think it is an important connection between the Tower of Babel and the commission to Abram in uh, Genesis 12. Part of the reason that's clear is because, for example, in Genesis 11, they were trying to make themselves a great name. And then in chapter 12, uh, in verse uh, 2, in part of the commission to Abram, he says, and I will make your name great. Mm-hmm. And they, these expressions are very closely related. Yeah. And also at the end of chapter 10, in verse 32, Genesis 10:32, these are the families of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, by their nations, and out of these, the nations were separated on the earth after the flood. These are the families. Well, at the end of the commission, Abram in Genesis 12, verse 3, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. In other words, all those peoples, the core source of the way God wants to bless them going forward is through what he does through Abram. Mm. 
And these are expressions that connect these passages together, showing that the primeval narratives in Genesis 1 through 11, and then the patriarchal narratives in Genesis 12 through 50 are together, bound together in very significant ways. So how are they connected? What's Yahweh doing with Abraham or Abram at this point? Well, Abram is receiving this really special commission. And basically, you know, he has to leave all of his comfort zone behind. Go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house in chapter 12. He's leaving everything behind that in a pastoralist situation, the family, the clan is the security. Mm -hmm. And he's being asked to leave all that and to go. And that if he does that, the Lord is going to bless him. Mm. Uh, I'll make you a great nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name great. And so on. And so really what's going on here is God is using Abram as kind of like the pivot person in the history of his redemptive work. Mm. Everything's going to now pivot around what he does through Abram and his seed. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, ultimately, the seed is Christ. But the point is that there's a whole historical process that he's engaging with here, and he puts Abram right at the center of it. It's kind of like, you know, we're we're used to thinking about, say, in basketball, a pivot man, Mm -hmm. you know, and that kind of a thing. Well, Abram's the pivot man in God's program of redemption. It's just a really helpful description to remember that this was a real man who actually had to leave his family, Mm -hmm. to leave his home, and God was calling him away from comfort into something so much greater, and that he said yes, Mm -hmm. because he could have said no. And so to watch his faith in that, like, I don't know, we look at Noah's story, and we're like, God asked him to do something crazy, but God also asked Abram to do something crazy, to pick up everything and to move, and God chose him, and it's really special. It's really important to understand Abram is the father of faith, right? Mm-hmm. And we often talk about that. That comes through in the New Testament. But it's important to understand what faith is. You know, in a very real sense, faith is Christian courage. Mm-hmm. It's a willingness to step out of the comfort zone and speak into a world that's dark mm-hmm. as light. Good. And in such a way, it takes some real courage to live the way God wants us to live in this world. Because this world is not a comfortable place for us. Our citizenship is in heaven. Mm-hmm. And so there's all of these parallels to this, and we're supposed to have Abrahamic-type faith in the way we live our life. Mm-hmm. So help us understand, when Abram is called, and this may be one of those times where there is an updating of the name, he's called from the land of Ur of the Chaldeans. Mm-hmm. Would that have been the land that Abram would have known it as, or what What do we know about that? And would Abram have known that he was going toward the Mediterranean and into the area that was controlled either by Ugarit or Egypt? Like, was it something that was a total blind leap for him? Like, oh, I'm going to pick up and go to a place I've, I have no idea about. Or was it a repositioning in his mind? What, what do you think about that? Well, it does seem that when you get to the second part of Genesis 12, that it's when he got to Shechem that -hmm. the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants, I will give this land. In other words, it appears that he didn't really know where he was going. Yeah, He's just walking until the Lord says, stop. (laughs) Yeah, and this is is what Hebrews 11 says too. Yeah. So uh, when it refers back to Abram. So it's kind of like in the early days of this country, 
you had this expression, young man, go west. You know what I mean? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. In, in the expansion. And they didn't always know where they were going. Yeah. And it's the kind of thing, it really is a big adventure, a big move. He moves his flocks with him and he takes a lot of movable property, a lot of people with him. Again, he's a sheik. He's not just a single person making this move with yeah. his family. He's a sheik. And so the whole thing is going with him. But he's leaving his family and his country and all of that behind. Mm -hmm. And he's going to, to make a new life somewhere else. Yeah. So he goes from Ur to Haran. And uh, doesn't his dad die in Haran? Yeah. According to chapter 11, uh, Terah died there and then he continued on. Yeah. So help paint the picture of uh, that world. Because I think a lot of times people hear Abram or Abraham and they're like, man, these people were totally like cave people, you know? <laughs> no, <laughs> or, or like, you know, just when, when really you already have writing systems that are already in place, you have developed societies. Oh, yeah. You have like the Epic of Gilgamesh <laughs> is existing. And so there's pretty sophisticated things going on. So help us paint a picture of what this would have looked like in reality. Actually, if you've looked even at there was this one what is this uh one movie hildago with uh, uh where the guy goes to to arabia to do it be in this race oh the horse race yeah yeah yeah, yeah. And, and if you look at the the way they're living there it would be very much the same got it the fact is that they they did live in tents but they were very sophisticated people and they had a lot of sophisticated relationships even political ones Abram made covenants with cities mm. and leaders of the cultures and uh, was considered to be, as it says in uh, Genesis 23, he was considered to be like a prince among them, mm. you know, a very important person. But he didn't own any land. It was the kind of thing where you were pastoralist and you just moved around for pasture. So he didn't even have a place to bury Sarai, his wife. Mm. But in the meantime, he's doing these negotiations with this place to get a place where he could bury his wife, have a family tomb. Yeah, and the way it describes that is that he he's clearly a well-respected person. So it's not like he's, you know, having to beg for this. The people who are doing transactions with him seem to, in some ways, at least defer to him. Oh, yeah, that it's very clear. And it's very, that's a fascinating passage because what it does is it shows you how they would even negotiate yeah. in that world, you know, uh, Abraham's willing to to pay for it, but of course the guy who owns the field and the and the cave for the, the tomb says, "No, no, I'll just give it to you," yeah, yeah. and so on. And then Abraham says, "No, you know, I should really pay you for this." He says, "Well, what is it between us that you would take a, a land worth this amount of money?" Mm -hmm. Well, what he did was tell him the price. Yep, you know yep, what I mean? Yeah. In the way you do it in that culture. Yeah, he's bartering with him. And that happens even in Israel today, yeah, you know, totally. for example. It's just part of the cultural mm -hmm. way of doing mm -hmm. things mm -hmm. that you might not recognize what's happening if you're not part of the culture. Yeah. So we have this culture. We got, I think we have a pretty good idea of you know what this would have looked like. But then you get into the Abrahamic narrative and you start to go down the patriarchs. And one, I think there's pretty common themes throughout. So let's touch on some of those. But then also... Like, there's a lot of jacked up stuff that's going on, you know? I mean, you have <laughs> you have Yahweh come and be like, hey, Abram, you know, partner with me in this thing. And Abram's like, okay, I'll go where you want. And he says, okay, stop mm -hmm. here. And then all of a sudden, they're going to Egypt. 
Abraham's given his wife over because he's afraid that he's going to mm-hmm. die. Can't trust that guy. It's like, what the heck, man? <laughs> then, you know, you have the whole Isaac situation with the command mm-hmm. of child sacrifice, and it doesn't get much better when Isaac comes along, and you have this conflict between Jacob and Esau. And mm-hmm. I mean, the whole thing just seems like it's extremely messy. And yeah. Refer back to Genesis 3. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So help us connect some of that <laughs> to see how this story would have been told and read in the ancient world and some of those major themes that, uh, like, what do we make of all that? Well, I think one of the things that we make of it is the Bible's very realistic. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. About the realities of life, mm-hmm. even for the faithful. Mm-hmm. You know, this is not an easy road. And I think the Bible's just very realistic about how different people go this way and then that, some are faithful, some are not, and some switch back and forth. And this is just a very good way to get into the realities of my own life is by reading these accounts and seeing the parallels. And so this is important. Another part of this, and I think it's this key, and it binds Genesis 1, 11, and 12 through 50 together again, is that in chapter 11, verse 30, Sarah was barren. She had no child. And what God was promising Abraham partly, was this multitude of seed, right? <laughs> yeah. If he would do this, if he would go forth and so on. I think part of it was just this focus on the seed. Now, remember, we're in a genealogical context. The, mm-hmm. the, the family thing was the biggest deal. Right. And if you don't have a son, that's a problem. Yeah. <laughs> it, I mean, you're outside the genealogy. Yeah, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. And, and so, But what happens in Genesis 3 with this seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent and the serpent bruising his heel, this starts out this seed concept. Mm-hmm. And that whole concept of the seed, after all, there wouldn't be much of a redemptive program if there weren't any people born. Yeah. You know, I mean, this is the nature of the whole situation. That's why the New Testament starts with genealogy, too. Mm-hmm. The point is you have to have this, and genealogies actually are quite fascinating. I've actually preached on the genealogies yeah. because actually if you get into them, they're very real life oriented. Mm-hmm. And this seed concept becomes real important. And then that's part of the rationale for why Abram follows through because God is promising him this thing. So there's a promise in the call and a promise of seed, a blessing, a land, all of that. And this is all part of what Todd is calling him to, but boy, to step out and do that is really risky. And that's where the faith comes in. So that can develop through a lot of this, and God is constantly working in the patriarchal narratives on the people. He's working on developing faith in them. And this actually ties into one of the things you raised about the Akeda, the Genesis 22 offering of Isaac, because... At this point, Abram's gone through a lot, and he's been faithful and unfaithful mm-hmm. uh, as you go through that. And you see the realities then of his life. But then you come to Genesis 22, and it says in verse 1, It came about after these things that God tested Abraham mm-hmm. and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah. Offer him up as a burnt offering. Well, first... It's important to recognize that the reader who's reading this story reads first that this is a test. Yeah. God has never intended that Isaac would actually be sacrificed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he's testing Abraham whether he's willing to trust him 
to this degree mm. to actually go through with something like this. And he stops him, but the point is, this is to show that Abraham has come to a certain point now in his faith where God can really, really press on him and he's going to remain faithful. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you use the terminology test because like I have a military background and it was always a, if you knew that you were doing something that was training or being tested in some way, then it's still extremely difficult, but it's not like this was going, hey, Yahweh called to Abraham and said, hey, no, literally, I literally want you to go kill your son. When you're saying built into the literary structure of Genesis 22 is a signal at the very beginning that, hey, Yahweh is not like Molech mm-hmm. or Chemosh to require child sacrifice. Uh, is that what you're saying? Yeah, but part of the thing that's interesting is the reader is told this, but but we Abraham don't know. Was not. Abraham yeah. wasn't. Yeah. You know what I mean? He had to actually follow through, but the reader knows up front that God never intended right. human sacrifice. Okay. But Abraham, I think he was going forward. And in Hebrews, it even says in Hebrews 11 that he was thinking that God would raise him from the dead. Yeah. So yeah, the yeah, fact yeah. is, he was going for it here. He had just to become so convinced that Yahweh was with him and that even though this was the seed, God had some way of fulfilling the seed promise. That's good. And so it's a way of showing that God just wants this level of commitment, and he wants that to be the foundation of all that goes on. Yeah, that's good. Well, at the same time, you see the Lord stop Abraham, and yet when the seed, the ultimate seed, arrives, he doesn't. That's right. Stop. And it is resurrection. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's a fantastic thing to understand the extremes to which God goes to redeem us. Mm-hmm. He's a loving God to the degree that he even gives his son. Yeah. And uh, this is a pretty overwhelming thought when you actually think about it. He he really goes for it. So there's a lot of, when we do read the patriarchal stories, we end up with Joseph in Egypt, and then the end of Genesis is obviously his death. But what are some of the major themes? If you're going through this with your class there at TEDS and you're, you're teaching the major thematic movements and commonalities between these stories, what are some of those that we should pay attention to when we read this book? Yeah. One of the things you, you just mentioned, Joseph, is the learning of the lessons that Joseph learned through what happened in Egypt, mm-hmm. even to his exaltation. Because at the end, in Genesis 50, The brothers are afraid Joseph's going to take vengeance on them for selling him into slavery. And Joseph responded, Do not be afraid, for I am in God's place. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. In other words, you just got to trust God no matter what happens, even some of the worst possible things that can happen. Because... Some might mean it for evil, but God ultimately always means it for good. Mm-hmm. And this comes through, you know, in the Romans eight twenty eight passage mm-hmm. and in various other places that not everything is good, but God turns them to his good in his own omnipotent way. Mm-hmm. And we have to trust that. That's what we're called to believe and to, to really trust and to live according to that. Mm-hmm. So that would be one of the main things that I get, I think God is kind of pushing toward that through the whole book of Genesis. 
is helping us to see what faith, what willingness to submit to God and follow him really looks like. Mm. It's it's a wonderful way to live. I mean, we get to actually live in this world to shine forth the glory of God. What better way could there be to live? But boy, with it comes the the cost of commitment. Yeah. And uh, that's just the nature of it. I think it's also interesting to me, as I've read this, I don't know how many times, I think at some point something clicked in my head, which that doesn't happen very often. <laughs> <laughs> but something went off in my head. And, uh, and I started to see that uh, you have this, you know, in the ancient Near East, they have this idea of this chaos creature, you know, this serpent, or sometimes uh-huh. called like Leviathan or... But you have this chaos creature in Genesis 3 who is bringing about all sorts of dysfunction. And mm-hmm. and the primary way he's doing that, like we talked about in previous weeks, was through doubt, through fear, through lying, mm-hmm. deceit, mm-hmm. accusation. And I think what we see, or at least what I started to see in the patriarchal stories, was that. Like, mm-hmm. Abraham is deceiving. He's lying about his wife. Uh-huh. You have Jacob who goes, he lies to his dad to get the birthright, and then uh, he's deceived by his uncle, and then he's doing some shepherding practices that are deceiving his uncle, and then his sons are lying to him about Joseph, and I think you see consistently throughout that people are acting like Genesis 3. Yeah, Um, yeah. And yet... The hero of the story throughout is even in the midst of that, that Yahweh continues to do what the patriarchs consistently fail to do. Yeah. And that is continue to push his program forward. So talk to us about some of that, some of those themes that we find in those stories. Well, I think one of the things that I've thought about a lot, and you can see it, that the realism of the stories and the kind of things that you were just mentioning. The reality is that if God didn't work with sinful people, he wouldn't have anybody to work with. Yeah, totally. Yeah. The result is that he perseveres when we don't, mm-hmm. even in his plan. His plan can't get sabotaged by us. Yeah. And he pushes us through by his own grace, mm. and we need that grace constantly. Yeah. And what happens in the Genesis stories is you see the extreme to which he's willing to work with people who are connivers and mm. You know, and liars and all sorts of things. Abram used his wife to protect himself, mm-hmm. you know, and all sorts of things from people around. And But God still protected that whole line and that whole seed. Mm-hmm. He has his own ways of doing things. For God, it doesn't have to all go right for him to accomplish what he's going to accomplish. Yeah. If it did, we're all totally hosed. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> he, he's, he's a very persevering and persistent God, even amidst our corruption. Yeah. And I am so thankful for that yeah. because without that, we'd all be lost. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it's this character of God that comes through working with this struggling, but he just doesn't back off. He keeps on pushing Abram and Isaac and Jacob to try to get to something that's substantial in their person, in their integrity. And he does. He works that. He's working toward that in every one of us. And all the issues of life are part of that. And that's why we even talk about counter all joy when you fall into various trials and things like that. Because as James 1 puts it, that that's how you mature. Mm. We're too stubborn to walk toward God on our own. He, he, he pushes and pulls and drags us 
through his grace. And uh, so we actually need the trials Mm -hmm. and so on. And we actually need to realize that he's always there. You know, in the garden, when the fall happened, their first reaction to what was to run away from God, right? Mm -hmm. But before the fall, they would have run to God. What happens now in our lives is it's never too late to run to God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but we have such a tendency to run away yeah, because of our fallen condition. Isn't it fascinating, too, though, that Adam and Eve cover themselves and hide, and Yahweh's response is to move toward them. Yeah. Um, yeah. Where he finds them, and he asks, hey, where are you? Yeah. And, man, I'm, you know, as you were talking just now, the fairly overwhelming sense that I got was, hey, look at the love of God. Yeah. You know? Yeah, he he stays with it. You yeah. know what I mean? You know, it's, it's interesting. You think about that, where they try to cover with themselves with fig leaves. Well, what kind of clothing does that make? And then, if you see, they go and they try to hide from God in the garden. And so on. Now, who's going to win hide and seek here? <laughs> the, 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 the point here is <laughs> that we do such foolish stuff. Yeah. And it feels like the right thing to do at the time. It's doing the right thing is is often very counterintuitive to us. But the idea is to run to him rather than away from him. And that's what he's looking for. But so many of us, I mean, that's, I think that's at the heart of the deception of the chaos creature in Genesis three is he's not safe to run to anymore. Yeah. And he is uh, someone other than who he actually is. I mean, that's the core, I think of the lie. Yeah. Um, that that even now today we're like ah, I can't run to God because of mm. because I've done this or that or and and the whole time I think what the text what the narrative what the oral tradition from thousands of years ago that people were telling each other is no look at the love of God look at the persevering yeah. persistent pursuit of people who are made in his image and and deeply loved and cherished by him. Yeah, that's that's really basic to everything else, including even our human relationships, learning to run to rather than away. Well, it's really sweet to think about the fact that that's not only true in our lives, but that God cared enough about us to remind us story after story after story. He's like, in case you didn't get it on this one, yeah. here's another Let's one. Let's try Abraham. <laughs> nope, didn't get it that next. It's yeah, just, yeah. it's crazy yeah. to be able to look back at the entirety of scripture and to know that the entire story is, yeah. is God's, yeah. God's love. passionate pursuit of yeah. people who run away from him. Yeah. There's this saying that reality is stranger than fiction. Yeah. And, <laughs> and boy, if you look at the stories in the Bible, who know, can think right? this stuff up? Yep. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. this, this is real stuff. And it's, it's wonderful to have so much because the more we look at that material, it's a mirror to us. And that's what's intended. That's been intended. James 1 actually talks about it that way. And so it's it's intended to be a mirror to our own life and soul. So you've spent many years studying the book of Genesis. As you have spent your time and a lot of your life's work in, in the Old Testament, in this book specifically, what is one major takeaway, one big lesson that you would say, hey, this is what I've learned from this book? That's a really good question. I um, it's <laughs> I think probably the thing that I take away from it, you know, across all of the 50 chapters, is the very nature of God and how that nature of God 
is meant to work in the lives of even a person who's fallen. Mm. And that, you know, even you, you read certain passages and you realize God really presents himself as really devoted here. I mean, like in chapter 6, verse 5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was very sorry that he even made man on the earth. and He was grieved in his heart. So on. God really takes this personally. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's really important. Those are relational terms. Those are emotional terms very of someone strong. who's in a relationship with someone. Like, I'm, I'm upset. Yeah, in Genesis 3, the, the woman has pain, the man has pain. In Genesis 6, God has God pain, has pain yeah. over this. And the word pain is actually used. So what what I'm suggesting is that it's the engagement with God. The whole Bible, let's think about it this way, that God was God before there was a Bible. And amen. people were people before there was a Bible. Yeah, amen. What the Bible is about is the relationship between the two. Mm-hmm. That's why we have it. Yeah. And so I think the biggest takeaway that I have from Genesis as the foundation of Scripture is that it lays out the basic issues in stark form, both conceptually and experientially in the lives of the people and so on, that it just is pretty overwhelming that we have such a God Mm -hmm. that would care this deeply. In this passage in Genesis 6, it even talks about the Lord was sorry. The thing is, it's not like God is thinking he made a mistake here. Mm -hmm. And this is where the ancient Near East actually comes in to be helpful in studying passages like this, because in the ancient Eastern world, the, the pantheon of the gods was pretty uh, confused, <laughs> and they would have conflicts between the gods yeah. and that sort of thing, and we even have texts that tell us you never know what the will of a god is or anything like that. Well, God makes it very clear what his will is, and that is he wants people to live in his image and likeness. Mm. And when they don't, it's painful. And he's grieved by that. Mm -hmm. And we have to take that very seriously. God put it that way because he wants us to take it that way. And he wants us to take it seriously in our own lives. We have a wonderful God who really, really can work at the very depths of everything we are and uh, take us in places we could not imagine. It's amazing that after your life's work that you come away with, hey, God deeply cares about you. and that. The way you live emotionally affects him. Yeah. And that's sweet to think that that does lay the foundation for God's redemptive story Mm -hmm. that he is setting up in the book of Genesis. Yeah. So for the person who is listening to this, maybe listen to all three. If you haven't, we encourage you to go listen to the previous weeks. But uh, for the person who's like, you know, ah, Genesis, I open it up. I don't understand. There's a lot of craziness in there. This is ancient story. What does it have to do with me? It's like, man, I think if that's your response to this book, then I don't think you understand it yet. Yeah. Um, yeah. And because, <laughs> because every single part of it is just as applicable today as it was to the audience it was told to so many years ago. Yeah, it's so foundational to everything in our lives and everything in the Bible that it's like uh, – <laughs> Where else would you start, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that's why it says, in the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But I think, too, you know, I think you also see 
you use the word archetype. These stories are archetypical of our story. I mean, we, yeah. we look at it and we're like, oh, this is me. Oh, them also. And also mm. like this helps me organize and understand yeah. and see even, I mean, there's so much in Genesis 3 that helps us understand the tactics of the enemy. It's unbelievable and sets a foundation for our understanding of who God is and what he's like and his passionate pursuit of his creation and the ongoing creative activity to, to save, to redeem the world, to make it his place that we see in, at the end of the Bible in revelation. You know, when we talk about that, uh, the realities of God, it's so clear about who God is and who we are. Mm. And one of the ways it's so clear is with like the dynamics of the fall in Genesis three. Actually, I I work, I'm also a licensed counselor. Mm. And one of the areas that I work in is the biblical theological foundations for counseling. And in this particular passage in Genesis 3, it's it's like a kind of a biblical psychopathology, you know, of what's going on in people and why they do the things they do them. Yeah. And it's really foundational, I think, to understanding what's going on with people. And even if somebody doesn't believe the Bible, the Bible's still right about what's going on in Come them. On. And, and so it, it just it puts us on a foundation for looking at our own life and the lives of others in such a way that's real. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> As an I'm an I'm an apologist here for our church, and so I do a lot of apologetics and training, equipping, and stuff like that. And the sentence that just popped in my head was like, if, when a skeptic is like, "Well, I don't believe that," then the answer is, "It doesn't matter. It's still real." <laughs> yeah, right. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't yeah, matter what you believe. Right. It's still real. <laughs> uh, your your belief or disbelief in it doesn't change the reality of what it is. Yeah, that's right. Um, well, man, we are super grateful for the years of diligence that you have shown. To learn the languages, I'm grateful that all those years ago, the Lord was like, hey, Dick, come over here, learn Hebrew, learn Ugaritic, <laughs> learn Akkadian, you know, because we benefit from it. And and I think that that's the point, right, is that God gives some as as pastors and some as teachers and evangelists, and, and you have stewarded your gifts well for the body of Christ, and so we're grateful. Well, thank you very much, and the Lord has been so great, and I just have so much fun doing what I do and this was great just talking with you both of you here this has been really great thank you thank you for listening to the equipping podcast if you like listening to my daddy go subscribe and leave him a comment tell my how cute I am <laughs> you can always send him an email at equipping podcast at watermark Org. You guys have a great week. Hey.